Welcome to Ridgecrest Baptist. We thank you for listening. Now, here is this week's message. It's a great job, music team. Thank you so much. I want to encourage you this morning to take your Bibles and open them to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12. And our text is Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. As we continue this series, we're calling Be the Church. Today we're going to talk about being the church that endures for Christ. A lot of people in social media circles like to use hashtags, and I was thinking this would be a good hashtag, hashtag BTC negative to positive. What we want to talk about today is how God can take negative situations in our life and turn them into positives. And I suspect that if we had a survey, if there was some way I could survey you uh, on paper this morning and said, is there anything going on in your life today that's causing you a trial or anxiety or difficulty, virtually everybody here would respond, yes, there's something in my life like that. It would probably be uh, near unanimous because life is full of stressful situations and we live in a world that's fallen. And because we live in a fallen world, we live in a world that even when we don't do anything wrong, we experience trials, we experience disease, you know, stressful circumstances and negative situations. And I really want to be clear here and start out with the definition of what we're talking about. When I, we're talking about dealing with storms in our life. So let me define what I'm talking about today as a storm. And what I mean by storm is this. It is a negative situation that is not resulting from personal sin. A negative situation that's not resulting from personal sin. And I want to clarify that because sin brings storms into your life. And if you're in a storm that's been caused by sin in your life, then the message today is repent. And ask God to forgive you and give you the strength to turn and flee from that sin. I was thinking about storms and, you know, it's one thing to have a storm come through your life when you're in your home on April, in April of 2011. And you're in your home. That's that's the kind of storm, you know, we're, we're, we're using that in a metaphorical sense, not a literal storm, but a spiritual life storm, some kind of event in your life that's like that storm. But if you're in sin and living in sin as a as a person and not repenting from that and not fleeing from that, you're like a storm chaser. You're the, the you're you're going out chasing after the storms and you shouldn't be surprised when you encounter the storms. So, again, I just want to be clear that we're talking about situations here that are relative to things not resulting from personal sin. And what I want to do is is just answer the question, how can we endure those kinds of situations and and remain faithful to Christ? Just be really practical. How can we get the strength to be effective witnesses, even in the midst of negative circumstances? And the Bible gives us this answer in our text. It gives us practical advice that's encouraging to us where God takes a negative in the life of Paul and he turns it into to many positives. And that, and that circumstance in your life is just like the Apostle Paul. It was recorded in Scripture so that you could understand that whatever trial, whatever storm, whatever negative you're going through in life is... You can look at this text and apply these same truths to your own life today. We simply have to understand that God has promised these things for us in his word for a reason that it would give us strength today in 2019. 
And if we are all doing this individually as, fa- as people that are believers who are brothers and sisters in the family at Ridgecrest Baptist Church, then we will be a church that endures for Christ. And that's our goal today. And the, the storms of life, like disease and cancer and dementia and accidents and things like that, those are inevitable. But the great news is that we have a means to live above those storms and experience true joy in life. And that can be learned from this scripture today. So here's what the the text is telling us. Paul was doing that in the midst of a storm in his own life. He was in jail in a Roman prison, literally chained at the time that he wrote this letter to the Philippian church. He was chained probably to a guard. And he didn't know what his future held, possibly death. He very likely could have been executed. And so I want to encourage anyone here today or anyone listening to this sermon who's at a point in their life where they're thinking, I don't know if I can endure this. I don't know if it's worth living for Christ. There might be somebody here today that's thinking, you know, I don't really know if this living for Christ is all it's cracked up to be. I have people as a pastor talk to me on a regular basis and basically they want to come and say, I don't understand why these situations, this negative is happening in my life. I've even um, on a regular basis have believers tell me and I'm talking about followers of Christ and say, you know, I'm discouraged because I thought if I'd live for Christ and I really began to to uh, say I'm going to make. God, the central thing in my life and seek first the kingdom of God and and live for the lordship of Christ and things will go better. And I'm still experiencing these negative situations in my life. Uh, And people say, you know, what's the use? If bad things are just going to happen, why don't I just go do what I want to do? And so first, let me say we cannot always understand why God does allow things to happen in our life. Oftentimes, the answer I give to people is to the question, why is this happening, is I don't know. But what I do know is the Bible teaches us that God loves us individually. And that was demonstrated for us on the cross because Jesus died for your sins. And he provided the means by which you can have eternal life. And live in a world where there's not going to be any more pain and suffering and sorrow. And that's a reality. I also know that the Bible teaches us that God is able to take people's free will decisions that negatively impact our own lives. Things that we're not necessarily even responsible for. And take those decisions and turn them into good in our life. The Bible teaches us in Romans 8.28 that we know that all things work together for good. For those who are called, who love God and who are called according to his purpose. So I just want to encourage you today. Don't quit. Don't give up. And if you're dealing with a negative, I want you to see that there's things happening in that from that negative that are actually going to be for your good and for the good of other people. And really, God is turning a negative into a positive. And that really starts with believing that God's in control This text helps us to see how God works things out and how God works in our lives behind the scenes. The Bible explains to us who God is and 
what he's like. And the only way that you can understand who God is is by the scriptures. You can't come up with those things on your own. That's why it's so important for us to apply the text and get into the scriptures as they were recorded for us, because God wants us to know who he is and what he's doing in your life. Because when here's here's the benefit of this. When you see what God is doing in your life, it's going to deepen your trust in him. It's going to let you see more and more who he is and how he loves you. And because you see more of his love for you, you're going to love him more. And in that process, you're going to find strength to endure the trial that you're in. And more than just strength, you're going to learn to sense joy, which is a deeper peace and satisfaction that comes out of um, having a deep and abiding love and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so just for a few minutes, let's journey through this text. And what we're going to do is find seven positives that came out of a negative situation. And it's true for each one of us today. Here's what the Bible says in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 1. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian guard into everyone else and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything. But but with that all boldness, Christ will not even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. As we begin this, the first thing I want to point out to you is in the very first verse that we read, Paul said, I want you to know this. He starts out saying, brother, I want you to know. He makes a point here. Somebody says, look, stop what you're doing. I want you to know something. They're emphasizing it. They're sharing how important it is in, in their life for you to understand this. And what the apostle was doing here was saying, my circumstances here are something you need to understand and what God is doing in them. And he goes on to say, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And he begins to remind them of what's central to life. And the centrality of this first chapter focuses on the gospel. It's included in the First chapter alone of Philippians, the word gospel five different times. And encouraging the church, and this is an application to your situation, is to focus in on the gospel in your in your own life. And I just quickly walk through them. In verse five, Paul says for the church to be participating in the gospel. In verse seven, to be confirming the gospel. In verse twelve. To be a part of the advance of the gospel in verse 16, to be defending the gospel. And then verse 27, 
He says, live worthy of the gospel. So the theme of this chapter is sometimes said, or really the theme of the entire book of Philippians is sometimes said to be joy and how to find joy. But I would actually disagree with that and agree with scholars who say that the real theme of the book of Philippians is actually the gospel. What Paul is ultimately concerned about is not how can you find joy in life? How can we find joy in life? That's as Paul would know, is, a, is really a human-centered point of view. It's to say, you know, what, what is it in life that will bring us joy? That's not the ultimate purpose of the book of Philippians. What Paul is ultimately concerned about is how can people live worthy? How can people live in a manner worthy of the gospel? And what we have in that question is a God-centric point of view. And Here's, here's the paradox. We talk a lot about how the, the Bible and the Christian life is a paradox, a seeming contradiction. It doesn't seem to, to make sense. If you do this, you wouldn't think the outcome would be that. But what Paul is arguing is if your life is God-centered and gospel-driven, the byproduct of that life in the long run over the course of a lifetime is joy. So the beneficial byproduct of a God-centered, gospel-driven life is joy. And Paul is saying, I have understanding. All of this is couched in a, in a concept that God is good, that he is sovereign, that God is trustworthy. And that he's working in my best self-interest. This story is a very much a New Testament version of the story of Joseph. If you know the, the story of Joseph, where. Joseph was able to conclude all these things in his life that his brothers had caused in his life. He said, you meant it for evil, but God has meant it for good. So it's a, it's a New Testament version of this same story. And Paul is saying, look at all these positive benefits that are flowing out of this. And the first one of those positive <coughs> benefits is number one on your list. It opens the gospel to people who otherwise would not hear of Christ. There's something going on in your life today that's a negative. There's somebody that God is saying you can use this opportunity to bring them the gospel message. To talk to them about Jesus, to do something that would help them to get saved or get right with God. And the only way that they're going to have that opportunity is through your witness to them and through the situation that's causing you actually stress Paul was, as I said, under house arrest, and the guards that were attached to him, it says that they were the Praetorian Guard. That word means um, they were the palace elite guards. <clears throat> Scholars tell us that there were probably 9,000 Praetorian Guards at this, this time, and they were hand-picked, they were hand-selected, they were the best of the best. They were the cream of the crop. They were going to go on later on to be career soldiers, and they would be um, NCOs and officers in the Roman Empire. And they were going to be assigned in the future to the most remote parts of the Roman Empire, all the way from Britain to India. In north, south, east, and west, you had no doubt many of these people came to the saving knowledge of Christ as a result of hearing the gospel as they were with Paul, as he was writing letters, praying, talking to people, 
And they subsequently carried the gospel message as leaders and influencers over the Roman Empire, throughout the Roman Empire, far greater locations than than the church had already expanded. Paul also said that it was not only the guard, but everyone else, meaning the entire imperial administration. He was influencing the highest levels of the Roman government because he was in a negative situation. They heard a message that was very different from any message they'd ever heard. It was different from the Roman religion. The Roman religion said, you know, be good, get to heaven. Paul said, no, you're never going to be good enough. You're so bad that God had to come down and die for you on the cross. And it's called grace and forgiveness is extended even to the Romans. And that message, that extension of the gospel can, the, the, the amount of people that heard that and were impacted by Paul's time in a Roman prison is really, truly immeasurable. We will never know how many people either came to Christ or later on through people that heard the gospel while he was there came to Christ. And so here's a, here's a key point. When you're in, and I'm in a situation, are we sitting in anger and, and frustration and getting mad and not speaking at all? Or are we, at some point, we've got to be able to come into this negative situation and actually share the gospel in words where people can understand who it is in us that's making us have a different outlook in life. You know, we have to share the gospel in words. And so, um, again, who is it that God has given you an opportunity to influence in the situation that you're in. Do you know that Paul wrote four books of the Bible while he was in this imprisonment? He wrote the book of Philippians, but also Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. It's most likely that he never would have taken the time to write those books and to stop his missionary efforts had he not had been forced to stop while he was in prison. How many people have come to Christ or been sustained through the preaching of the Word or through the the daily devotional reading of these those four epistles over the course of 2,000 years of church history, that number is immeasurable. So see, here's what I'm saying. Maybe, just maybe, God's got a plan. And maybe, just maybe, there's a situation that's going on, but in order to reach more people for Christ, and we can kind of see what's going on, God's letting some things happen in our, li- in our life. So Paul said... There's a benefit here, and I want you to know what it is. And and he said there's a a second benefit, and that is Christians are being encouraged. Number two, verse 14, it says, And most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, they've become more courageous to speak. So number two inspires greater boldness in other believers. When you are enduring for Christ's sake. You're, you're influencing somebody out there. Let me, let me tell you something about Christianity. Christianity is a contagious disease. And there's two different cases. There's a, a positive case and a negative case. So you can, you're either spreading Christianity positively or spreading it negatively. And Paul was saying, uh, people around me are seeing my situation and the fact that I'm not afraid to continue to preach Christ and talk about what God has done in my life and how Jesus has saved me from my sins in the midst of my negative situation. And people are being emboldened by that. Most of the Christians I know, especially men, 
If they're bold for Christ, will tell you the reason I'm bold is because I saw I was influenced by this other man in my life. So men, especially, but I'm sure it's probably true of women as well. They are oftentimes whatever you want to call it, on fire, fired up, passionate, you know, people outspoken for Christ because they saw that in somebody else and they imitated it. But the bad news is, if your case of Christianity is negative Christianity, that's contagious as well. Christianity is contagious. So if you're having a brand of Christianity that's really negative, it will discourage others and it will influence others. So you can't really be one or the other. You can't ride the fence. And Paul was encouraging people to see that he was um, setting an example that was encouraging other people to live in their, the midst of their storms with a positive outlook in life. That's the second positive that comes from it. But he also said he was, um, he was encouraging them, even though he himself was being slandered and being talked negatively about by other believers. Verses 15 through 18 tell us that some people were preaching in his absence out of envy and strife and that some did it out of love, but he said many of them were doing it out of selfish ambition. And Paul says that they were taking advantage of him. He was the leader. He was, he was the man in Christianity at the time. And so when he went to jail, there were people that had selfish ambitions and they were essentially power hungry. There are people that enjoy the power that comes from leadership in churches and enjoy being in control. And when they saw he went into prison, they took advantage of that. They jumped on the uh, opportunity to to get into uh, the the leadership role and to get things done their way. And so Paul gives us a third positive that comes out of this. And he says it surfaces true motives of Christian service. The truth was coming out that there were people that were not truly in love with Christ and wanting to glorify God as their first and primary motive. People were trying to get power and trying to build their own kingdom. My kingdom come. My will be done was their preaching mantra. And Paul actually said throughout this all, I just commend them into the sovereignty of God. He didn't um, speak out against what they were doing because their theology was correct enough that people were still getting saved, that Christ was being proclaimed. And I just want to make this key point. Theology matters. Where Paul would step in and say this is wrong is where there were theological errors. And he's going to do that later in the book of Philippians where these people are going to come along called Judaizers. And the Judaizers are going to say in order to get to heaven, in order to be regenerated, to be saved, you have to trust Christ but also add Judaism to that. You have to do all of the Jewish rituals that we previously did. So it was Christ, it was Christ plus something else. And that is something Paul absolutely draws the line in the sand and says that that's heresy and wrong. So theology matters. He's not saying that you can believe anything and it's okay. But what he was saying is where the true gospel was being proclaimed, that he was going to commend those people's motives into the the sovereignty of God and let God deal with them. And I think that speaks to a church that's in a county with 80 other Southern Baptist churches. And non-denominational churches like the Church of the Highlands where they're out there and influencing and preaching a gospel message. 
And so I just want to be crystal clear. We are not in competition with any other church. We don't need to feel like we've got to compete. We just want to have pure motives and we want to be the church. Let's do what God has called us to do, which means be the church and all these things we're talking about and then leave the results up to God. But being the church is not letting go and letting God. It's hard work. It's going to take service and it's going to take people committing to Christ. And it starts with understanding, again, the purpose of the church is the glory of God. We do not exist for people that are currently members of this church. We exist to reach and teach the lost with the saving knowledge of the gospel. Everything we do should be externally focused to reach more people for Christ. We exist to be excited about God. We exist to, be, to do whatever we do for the glory of God, for His excellence. And our mission is the Great Commission. And there are plenty of people that need to be connected to Ridgecrest that are right now not in church. We could get in our cars and drive around and we would be blown away by how many people are going about. And a Sunday is just another Saturday, folks. And I've, I've often so badly wanted to take people that were leaders in the church where I was serving in and just say, let's have somebody else preach. And at the beginning of the service, let's just drive around and see what people are doing. And what they're doing is exactly what they were doing yesterday this time. And there's plenty of them out there. And if they die today, they're going to go to hell for eternity. And there are responsibility. So there's what I consider to be plenty of fish in the lake. And our lake is all of Tuscaloosa County. It's a big lake. And so we need to be like Paul and simply praise God for where the gospel is truly proclaimed. And, and just say we're going to focus on what we can control here at this church. And I think that brings us to the fourth positive that comes out of this. It lowers what I call unproductive competition between ministries and you could even say the word ministries is unproductive competition between people in your life. There's somebody, you know, men especially, we are prone to want to compete with other men in everything we do, including like our careers. And I think this speaks to the, the there's a point at which that competition can be unproductive, whether it's between individuals or between churches. And be sure to understand, Paul, you know, he is saying it. Theology matters, but we're, you know, he was not worried about competing with other people. He was rejoicing where people were getting saved and lives were being transformed. And he was focusing on the people around him that needed to hear the gospel. And so I just want to encourage you, you know, continue to understand you are the central means by which the church is going to grow. This week... And I know it can be discouraging. This week, I probably invited, uh, I don't know, six to eight people to come to church. And almost all of them seemed interested. And I don't see any of them here today. But my, my question is, is that going to stop us from fishing? You know, I, I just want to say, are we fishing? And I know there's a one in, a person in your life. There's somebody in your life. You know, there's a movement right now in the SBC called Who's Your One? And I think that that's just something that it's such a good concept. Who's that one person that God's placed in your life that you could come actually have them through your relationship with them come and sit next to you in this church? Come and be in your small group. There's somebody that you need to be in, investing in and 
and looking at if somebody you need to have attached to this church. Let me ask this question. Is there anybody at Ridgecrest Baptist Church that is here today or is a current attending member of Ridgecrest Baptist Church that came as a result of you investing in their life? Outside of your family, outside of your children, maybe your grandchildren, outside of the people in your family, is there anybody here that's connected to Ridgecrest as a result of the, the relationship that you built with them and the encouragement you gave to them? That would be a prayer you could pray today. God, if, if you would give me a heart to fish for people out there and begin to say, you know, if God, if, if I realize if we, if every person that's here today, in the next two years, had one person become a member at Ridgecrest and either became saved and joined or an earned church, so-called, you know, pe- there's t- people I meet every day, they're like, I am saved, I'm a Christian, where do you go to church? I don't go to church. Or I used to go to church, but I don't go very regularly. Those kinds of people that we're looking, if, one, if each one of us would connect one person like that in, t- in the next 24 months, in two years, two years from today, our church would be double the size it is. And it all starts with prayer. And Paul, he lays this preeminent importance on prayer. Paul elevated prayer to really the extreme level. Look at verse 19. He says, "For well, I know that this, he's talking about his, his situation. I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. This is the fifth positive. It comes out of a negative. When you have a negative in your life, it elevates prayer as a central source of world change. One thing's for certain, when you're in crisis, you pray a lot more. And Paul said his prayers were on par with the spirit of Christ, the presence of Christ in his life with vital importance to carrying out his deliverance. That's, that's, that's pretty significant. Does that strike you as like Paul is saying, you're telling me that when people in the church at Philippi are praying, that's going to lead to your deliverance along with the presence of Christ in your life. What I'm telling you is Paul weighed great emphasis on prayer in his life. And we don't know exactly what he meant by deliverance. And just some people say, well, deliverance means getting out of prison. Some people meant sustaining him through all of his uh, trials that would eventually lead to him going to heaven. The language is not clear. And again, scholars have debated this. But the point is really that Paul is saying when people prayed in the church, he got strength from that. And so it's clear um, that Paul is saying the crisis and the negative situations in our life, they surfaces the power of prayer. And it begs the question, you know, how are we, you know, how are we praying as a church and as individual people? It's hard work. It takes discipline. I just want to encourage you today that when you pray, the world changes. And when we pray, we pray that God's will would be done and God's kingdom would come, even if that means that it's not the, the outcome that we would prefer. I just really want to uh, encourage you not to fall under this name it and claim it theology that says if you have enough faith, God can, is going to answer your prayers, so it really falls back on your faith. That's, that's heresy. Because God sometimes allows us to be in situations where he doesn't answer our prayers the way we want it to. Ask Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where he prayed, Lord, if there's any way that this cup would pass from me. That prayer was not answered. 
I think Jesus had sufficient faith. Ask Paul when he prayed three times that that thorn in his flesh would be removed. And the Lord said, my strength is perfected in your weakness. And Paul said he would praise the Lord all the more because of it. People have come to me and said, we prayed over this woman that had cancer and she had um, oil put on her and we anointed her and we named her healing. And they rejoiced that she would be healed of cancer. And six months later, she was dead. And that greatly discouraged these Christians. We need to pray not uh, for more faith, but we need to pray that God's will would be done and God's kingdom would come for his greater glory. And I want to encourage you to pray more in life, pray for longer periods. I think we, we need to learn to pray in quiet. We live in a society that's afraid of quiet. We need to be still and know that he is God. We need to learn that um, life is empowered by prayer and the prayers of the church strengthen people to endure and when you go through that situation, part of what you're experiencing is to learn the power of prayer so that down the road, when other people are going through situations, you'll pray more fervently for them. What God is doing is he's shaping you in, into the image of Christ through the suffering and the negative situations that you experience in life so that in the future, maybe years from now, you'll be able to be more effective for his kingdom by being a greater prayer warrior. Paul's life um, continued here in verse 20. Look at verse 20. He says, I want to have an earnest expectation and hope that I'll not be put to shame in anything. But that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. This is the sixth positive. It deepens your resolve to testify and to witness for Christ. It focuses your life like a laser focus on um, how important it is to resolve to live for Christ. It, the negatives in our life cause us in our pain and suffering to sing that old hymn that says, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And it finally leads us to that last conclusion, concluding verse, verse 21 for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That verse is so profound and so deep, it's, it's very difficult to um, express to you how much is in that verse. It's, it's easy to undervalue it and it's difficult to appreciate the depth of it. It's a verse that we need to think of deeply about. We need to meditate on this verse because God's will for our lives corporately, I mean, for us, us, including me, is to reach a place in life where we really believe that. To live as Christ and to die as gain. And Paul was expressing here that the, the negative situation that he was in was actually re- Focusing his life on God's grand story of existence. And that's the last positive that comes from a negative. It refocuses the grand story of our existence. It reminds us that we're not made for this world. We're not made for 60 or 70 or 100 years. We're made for eternity. And God created us for his purposes 
God created us to be in his direct presence, like Adam and Eve were. God created us for what we'll experience in heaven. And so when we experience that, when we, are, when we understand that, then we begin to see the benefits that heaven are going to afford us. And in this life, Paul is calling us to appreciate the, the joy that comes from a life that's totally surrendered to Christ. In part, what Paul is saying was to, to die to myself as the God of my life today. Is to, that's when you start to live. When you say, you know, I'm going to not be the Lord on the throne of my life, but I'm going to put Jesus on the throne of my life and live for the glory of God. We die to self very much like a picture of baptism buried with Christ. Paul said in Galatians, I'm crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's what it means to die to Christ. And that's when you start to live. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's a paradox. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And yes, there is an eternal perspective of it. Where we ultimately know the best is yet to come, folks. I don't care how good this life gets. The Bible teaches us the best is yet to come. And when we see each other in heaven, we're going to, what, we're just going to be like, how much better is this than Ridgecrest in the Tuscaloosa was in 2019? And that's what Paul meant when he said to live as Christ and to die as gain. And so in our life today, we need to let go of some of the cling, clinging we have to this world and just realize that God loves us. He's got a plan and he wants to work it out. And he is calling us to trust him. And so I just want to encourage anybody here today that would say, I have never reached a place in my life where I have totally surrendered to Christ. I've never truly given my life to Christ. Today you can be saved right now, even where you sit. And if you're a Christian here today, and maybe a long time ago you made that commitment, you're a born-again Christian, God's speaking to you about maybe um, leaning into the power of God more today to trust that He's working things out that you may not understand in the trials of your life. But whatever He's doing, He's doing it in your best interest because He loves you. So I'm going to ask us all to bow our heads and enter a time of prayer. And for some of us here today, it may be a decision that you need to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. We hope this message will help you in your spiritual walk and growth. For more about Ridgecrest, please visit us on the web at www.rbc-tuscaloosa.com. Have a great day and God bless.